Hello and welcome to Over the Edge. This episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Dr. Robert Blumoff, Executive Vice President and Chief Technology Officer at Akamai. As CTO, he guides Akamai's technology strategy to assess new market opportunities and new platforms for innovation, explores adjacent segments for the business, influences the development of standards, works with Akamai's largest customers, and convenes technology leaders within the company to catalyze innovation and represent Akamai's technology vision in the marketplace. In this episode, Dr. Blumoff explains how Akamai revolutionized content delivery networks and is continuing to evolve and expand its services. He discusses internet growth, adapting to a more robust virtual world, and important considerations for security. Dr. Blumoff also talks about how AI and ML will help shape the future of our cities. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by Dell Technologies to unlock the potential of your infrastructure with Edge Solutions. From hardware and software to data and operations across your entire multi-cloud environment, we're here to help you simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting Dell.com for more information or click on the link in the show notes. Two years ago, when I started the Over the Edge podcast, it was all about edge computing. That's all anybody could talk about. But since then, I've realized the edge is part of a much larger revolution. That's why I'm pretty proud to be one of the founding leaders of a nonprofit organization called the Open Grid Alliance, or OGA. The OGA is all about incorporating the best of edge technologies across the entire spectrum of connectivity, from the centralized data center to the end-user devices. The Open Grid will span the globe and will improve the performance and economics of new services like private 5G and smart retail. If you want to be part of the Open Grid movement, I suggest you start at opengridalliance.org, where you can download the original Open Grid manifesto and learn about the organization's recent projects and activities, including the launch of its first innovation zone in Las Vegas, Nevada. And now, please enjoy this interview between Matt Trefiro and Dr. Robert Blumoff, Executive Vice President and Chief Technology Officer at Akamai. Bobby, how are you doing today? Feeling good, yeah. It's cooled down a little bit here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We had some crazy hot days like the rest of the country, but it's cooled down a little bit. So I'm happy about that and I feel good. How did you get into technology? You know, I actually come from a show business family. I don't know if, I don't know if you saw that anywhere in my background, but um, I grew up in Beverly Hills, 90210, the whole thing. My dad was a film producer and he, he ran production at United Artists for quite a few years and was director of the American Film Institute in Beverly Hills. And on my mom's side, my grandfather was the comedian Jack Benny. And of course, he was a radio and television. Well, some, actually, probably a lot of you listening have no idea who I'm talking about. Some of you may be on the older side. Older Americans uh, know exactly who I'm talking about and can remember some of his, his comedy routines. And Was he alive I, when you were alive? Did you meet him? Yeah, um, I was 10 when he died. But I have great memories of, of being with granddad. And um, he was a big baseball fan. And, and I was, as a little kid, we, we used to go to Dodger Stadium. Dodger games, yeah. It was those experiences I remember that first, first really my recognition that he was famous because, you know, we'd go to the games and people would ask for autographs and things like that. And I did see him perform a couple of times in Vegas in front of a in front of a live audience. And and being at the house was always an experience because his friends were always there, whether it was the, the Sinatras or George Burns or Billy Wilder or Gregory Peck or whoever might be there. But that generation of Hollywood, those those were his friends. And, and as a little kid, I do remember. And, and, I, and even at 10, I was aware that that was special and exciting. But there was never any notion for me that that was something that I wanted to do myself. For whatever reason, as a 
very young kid, I really recognized myself as kind of a nerd, as a math and science kid. Unfortunately, I did have a role model in the family. I have an older half brother. He's almost 10 years older than me. And when I was in maybe sixth, seventh grade, he was already at Stanford as an undergraduate and he was taking computer science classes there. And I have a very clear memory of him coming home one summer and he had just gotten this programmable Hewlett Packard calculator. And and he showed me. He showed me how to use it. And I remember the first thing about it is you have to learn that so-called representation. RPN. And which I thought was incredibly intuitive and cool. And and to this day, with a calculator, I still prefer to use use RPM. The idea of really, like the idea of a stack is like hard coded into your your, it your really mental models. Is. I That's remember neat. being really yeah, exactly. The stack and it's just a really cool way of, of expressing arithmetic. So I, I was really taken by that. But this thing was also programmable. And he showed me the basics of, of programming and, and I was just smitten. And so I went off and I taught myself the assembly because it's an assembly language. So you have to do everything. There was no basic or, or any high level programming language. It was just assembly. And so I taught myself how to program and he was nice. He let me use it whenever I wanted to. And I would write these stupid little programs. Now I was maybe in sixth, seventh grade, but that's kind of what got me started on, on technology at, at an early age. The other thing I would just say about my childhood is, you know, as, as, as a kid, especially then where there was no internet, there was no video games or anything like that. Kids, I think at that age are, are bored a lot. <laughs> and you don't even have as many options on TV, right? Because there's what, two or three channels. And if your favorite right. show is on, it's not on. There's oh, Sunday do. mornings were the worst. <laughs> yeah, Saturday mornings were great. Not so much Sunday mornings. And so I, I remember hobbies and my hobbies were always building things. And so I learned how to build model airplanes and, and model railroads. And, and my mom, of course, she was very tolerant of all this. And I'd spend my time in the garage and I'd build these elaborate model airplanes, radio controlled. Then she'd drive me out to like the, the field where you would fly the things. And I never learned to fly them. It was literally months and just months. Build of, them? Yeah. It, it, months and months of building and then two seconds of flying. And it would that just, just sound, that sounds like me. Yeah. Yeah. But so I was always into kind of into technology in one way or another, building things. And then software really came through my, my older brother teaching me how to program. Yeah. What's your first memory of the internet? Real internet, probably not until college, because I'd have to say in high school, I really didn't pursue any, any pro. I didn't take any programming classes, but at that point they were available. I went to prep school on the East Coast at, at Phillips Academy and just didn't pursue any of that. So it probably wasn't really until college. And then it would have been when I was an undergraduate at Brown. And that was when I first started taking programming classes. And, and really at that point, the internet was really just email. And then there was- What, what um, year roughly was this? 90. 80- 87, 88. Oh, 83. Okay. Yeah. So I was an undergraduate starting, I started in 82. I was class of 86 at Brown. So started in 82. I think I took the first class maybe in 83. I think I was in my second year, sort of in 83, 84. And at that point I started getting access to email through, through Brown and, and we, and there was also Usenet. So the, the, I would say the main application, the main internet applications we used were, were, well, there was no web at that point. I mean, we'll go for Actually, I forget. No, no, there was there was Prodigy in America Online, and right, that's right. You had the, there wasn't right. really a brow- browser. Was 95, 90, 95, I think, is Mosaic. I think. Yeah, you're right. So, um, yeah, Mosaic came around the mid '90s, but Tim Berners Lee published the spec for HTTP earlier than that. Not much earlier, but earlier. And so you did have other applications like Gopher, I think, where you could use right. the sort of a non graphical web browser. But you're right, that came a bit later. So it would have been purely email and Usenet. 
And I remember back then I was, I was pretty big deadhead and there was a great Usenet forum where you could, you could get access to audio recordings. You had to download these ridiculous encoded files and then concatenate them together and then run a, a program that would take, that would turn the text into an actual audio file. And, and it, but there was, there was mechanisms for doing that even back then. Yeah. And you're, you're now the CTO of Akamai and I guess you've been there almost 25 years, right? Yeah. Yeah. I just joined in. Uh, That's an unheard of tech career. It's amazing. I know. Crazy. But I, I joined the company in 99. How many employees? Uh, I think I'm employee number 130 something. Okay. It was actually really sort of my second real sort of professional programming gig. When I was at Brown, I took a year off and spoken a lot about one of the, one of my great mentors at, at Brown, sort of a legendary professor there, uh, Andy Van Dam, who taught the first programming class and was really sort of the inspiration. And he was one of those guys who saw something in me, even though I was kind of a screw up at that time. And, and uh, he, when I took a year off, he got me a job at this incredible company called Cadre Technologies. It was a startup in Providence, Rhode Island. And I think I was employee number 30 something there. So it was, it was small. And that was my first professional programming experience. And it was a really great group of dedicated, really smart programmers. And they kind of, you know, I was the young kid. At that point, I was only maybe, I was maybe 20. And they really sort of almost took me under their wing and, and, and sort of they, they taught me a ton. Because these were experienced professional programmers. I was more of a hobbyist at that point or coming from the academic. And it was really a, a rem- just a remarkable experience. And I have Andy to thank for that. And, and he did a lot more for me than that. But also ultimately between that experience and, and working with Andy, I managed to get myself into MIT for the graduate program. And that really, and the reason I bring it up is because it's so directly connected to, to Akamai. It was really the experience at MIT and the people I met there that led to, to, to Akamai because that was nine, sorry, that was 89. I, I started at the lab for computer science. I was in the theory group. And my PhD advisor was Charles Lyserson, who maybe some of your audience might know as one of the one of the four authors of the the famous uh, algorithms textbook, the Corman Lyserson Revestenstein algorithms textbook. So Charles was my my PhD advisor, and I also worked very closely with Professor Tom Layton because they were really they were sort of the two professors who were working on algorithms for distributed and parallel systems. That was my interest. I I, I wanted to be on the mathematical side of things. But I was also very interested in parallel and distributed systems, not for any particular application, by the way. I, it was really it was really about the mathematics. And I was just really interested. That's what I wanted to do. And those are the two professors in the theory group who were I'm going to ask you a really, really naive question. How, how does how do mathematics and distributed computing relate? Basically, I would have to say that the, the types of things we were looking at at that time were it, for example, a, a distributed system is oftentimes represented as a network. So you can think of it as a graph. You've got nodes that represent computers or storage locations. And then you've got links between those nodes that represent the wires, if you will, or the pipes or tubes, whatever word you want to use, that interconnects them. And they're basically then fundamental questions of if you are located in one place on that network and your data is somewhere else, how do you get from one place to another? And how do you move data from one place to another in an efficient way? Because you've typically got multiple data flows that all have to be coordinated across that network. And there's constraints. Each node is of a particular size. The links are of particular sizes. And so the, the, the questions of where do you place data? How do you find data? How do you orchestrate the movement of data? How do you orchestrate the placement of computing? On which nodes do you want to do which computing and things like that? 
all those are basically fundamental algorithmic questions. And by the way, I was mostly interested in from, from the mostly interested in these questions from the algorithm side. There's a complexity side. So very crudely, when you think of theory of computing, there's a complexity side, which is about, about sort of proving lower bounds. And there's the algorithm side, which is coming up with solutions and proving upper bounds, if you will. That's way oversimplified. But I was more interested in the algorithm side, coming up with solutions to the problems and then characterizing the efficiency of those solutions, which then gives you upper bounds. And, and how did you go from a PhD student at, at MIT to Akamai? Now, Akamai came out of MIT, right? Is that correct? Right. So that's yeah. exactly how I got there. Because my experience with Tom, Tom Layton, he then went on to become one of the co-founders of Akamai with his graduate student, Danny Lewin. They started the company in summer of 98. And I joined and I knew about it. I, you know, I knew about Tom and I knew that a bunch of my, a bunch of my friends and colleagues from MIT had joined the company. And so in the summer of 99, that's when I joined. And I've told the story fairly often because you know, I didn't know what the company did. Uh, honestly, it was all I really knew. I knew it was Tom's company. I knew my former advisor, Charles Leisterson, was taking a sabbatical there. I knew my academic brother, uh, Bruce Maggs, was the head of engineering. I knew a bunch of other former colleagues of mine and friends of mine were at the company. But other than that, I didn't know anything. But what my logic was, was, well, it doesn't really matter what the company does. because <laughs> Right. I get to work with these amazing people. <laughs> that's it. You know, that's it. It, 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 was, it was almost obvious to me that if I stayed close to these people, that something good would come out of it. It would be interesting and it would be fun because all these people all have good sense of humor. They're fun to be with and, you know, motivated. It's actually great career advice. I mean, I would say that a lot of my career has been guided by the same, you know, kind of ad hoc principles. But I've never thought of quite encapsulating that way. But that's, that's, yeah. actually, really, that's actually a really interesting way of, of thinking about your career. Yeah, as, I, as I've gotten older, I like to give unsolicited advice, especially to my kids. And they don't really listen, much like I probably didn't listen to my parents. But yeah, that, that, that's... They do. It. They'll remember when they make a mistake that, that doesn't go along with what you told them to do. They'll be like, oh, yeah, dad told me. Yeah, that's how I am now. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, my dad, <laughs> my, my dad told me, told me that years ago, if only I had listened. But it doesn't really register with them. But indeed, I, I do. I, I say, you know, pay attention to, to the people, follow the people, be around people who inspire you and motivate you, who, who support you and are positive. And I always add in sense of humor. You got to keep a sense of humor. You got to stay around people who enjoy the, the humor and, and find the joy in the environment that we're in. So yeah, follow the people. Yeah. Well, so, so it's funny you say that back at the time, you didn't even know what Akamai really did. And I, I think a lot of people in my audience don't actually know what Akamai did, does. And, and certainly if they have a sense of what Akamai does, they don't have a full sense of, of how large and, and extensive Akamai's network and product solutions are. So can, can you tell me what Akamai does? Yeah, sure. Well, as, as I discovered shortly after I joined, Akamai had invented and, and is still to this day, at least as part of the business, what's commonly referred to now as a content delivery network or CDN. And that's now become a pretty common term. I think it's safe to say that Tom and Danny really invented content delivery, the, the content delivery network. Now there's, there's many out there today, but I, I think it's safe to say that they were, that they were the first with the, with the founding of Akamai and really even the, the, the concepts of what is a CDN, though they might not have called it that at the time, went, went to even before Akamai when they were still running this as a research project at, at, at MIT. But to what is a content delivery network? It's basically, it's a distributed network of machines that actually act as, as proxies for an application. 
And the fact that they're distributed is very important because it basically works as follows. Imagine that you've got an, a website and you're hosting your website, say here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So you've got, you've got a data center or, or it could be nowadays, it could be a cloud data center. doesn't matter. I don't think there's a cloud data center here in Cambridge, but somewhere nearby there is. So anyway, you're here in Cambridge, you're hosting your application here in Cambridge, but you want to make that application available all around the world. And there might be somebody in Mumbai, India, who wants to access your application. Now, it's a long distance from Mumbai, India to Cambridge, Massachusetts, with not only a lot of geographical distance, but a lot of network distance from, say, whatever network, from Reliance Network in, in Mumbai to some, some backbone provider across the ocean to a network here in the U.S., maybe AT&T, to whoever the hosting network is. So there's probably three, four, five networks in between, probably dozens of routers and links in between, not to mention all the geography. So for that user in Mumbai to communicate with a website here in Cambridge, you can imagine the performance is not going to be very good. What we do is, as Akamai, what a content delivery network does, is we have servers all over the world, including servers in Mumbai on the local network, on, for example, the Reliance network in, in Mumbai. So when that user in Mumbai goes to request some content from this web server, instead of that request going all the way to Cambridge, it instead gets redirected to an Akamai server that's nearby. For example, the Akamai server that is in Mumbai on the Reliance network or whatever Akamai server is nearest them. And that's a piece of, of mathematics and algorithms and secret sauce, if you will, that we call Mapper. And that's one of the early inventions, or at least an initial version of Mapper is one of the very first inventions of the company. How do you redirect that end user's request to the Akamai server that is near to them and best able to handle that request? So anyway, so, so the request, instead of having to traverse all that distance to Cambridge, it instead goes to the Akamai server nearby. And that Akamai server nearby actually serves up the content to the best of its ability. Now, it may not have all the content in its cache. Caching is a big piece of that content delivery technology. Not everything, but it's an important part of it. If the server already has the content in its cache, it can serve it up right directly from the cache. And the communication happens locally within Mumbai on the Reliance network. If the server doesn't, well, then there's a whole hierarchy that it goes through to try and find a copy, ideally without having to go all the way back to Cambridge. If it does have to go all the way back to Cambridge, it does. But most often it doesn't have to go all the way back to Cambridge and you can find the content near the end user, serve it from a server that is near that, that end user. So that's the basic yeah. idea of a content delivery network is it's a, it's a very... Yeah, so your, your job at Akamai is to predict what people are going to need based on the application profile and what you've determined is happening using some magic secret sauce, and then to essentially preload the content you think they're going to need into a cache, which is these machines, and they're all over the globe. Right. I, I, how many of these machines are there. Now we're up to about 350,000 machines located in thousands of locations, about 1,000 cities, 135 countries, 1,300 plus different networks where we're directly connected, directly inside those networks. So it's, it's very large now, which of course has been a consequence of the, of the growing scale. 
And, and there's a whole conversation we can have about how we've expanded from that seed of being just a basic content delivery network, serving up cached content effectively, which would be the, the images that were embedded on a web page or the videos that are embedded on a web page that you could cache and deliver. That is, that's still a piece of our business, but it's nowhere near the whole business anymore. We've expanded significantly since then, but that was the seeds of the company. And that really is in essence, what a content delivery network yeah, and, and we'll come back to sort of the new lines of, of business that Akamai has gone into over the years. And, and, and I just want to talk about this sort of this fundamental, you know, because I think when, when you, you watch these basic videos on YouTube on how the internet works, you tend to see something like there's a computer and there's a server. And then, you know, it's like two cans and a string. Somebody draws a line and maybe they'll, they'll draw a line with some hops that go somewhere. And maybe right. they'll talk about how packets get distributed and they can take different routes and they get reassembled. But you, you tend to, to see these lines and you think, oh, everybody uses those lines and sends it there. And when we were talking earlier, you were talking about the power of TCP IP and the ability that is the sort of core functionality of the internet. But what very few people realize, and what I'm trying to draw out here is, is that like, Akamai is this, it's an overlay yeah. to what we think of as the internet. And to some extent, the internet doesn't work the way we think necessarily. Because like you said, when I, if I need a piece of content and that piece of content is on one of Akamai's servers and there's a business relationship that makes that possible, my request isn't going to go over the path that it thinks it's going, right? Because it's, it's sending something an IP address. And yeah. so to, to some extent, and I don't mean this to be a bad word, I just can't give a better word, like Akamai like, hijacks that request and processes it locally to create this performance improvement. Can you talk a little bit about how it's possible to do that without breaking the internet? Like, how is that not just completely creating this like separate thing that's off in some other place? The power of the internet, and in particular the internet protocol, is you couldn't overstate just how amazing of an invention it is, partly due to just the, the stark simplicity of what the internet protocol is. And there's probably a whole long thing we could talk about, but maybe it is worth, since you, since you brought it up, sort of explaining a little bit of uh, you know, the power of the internet protocol. The way I think of the internet or a definition is it's basically a network of networks that all speak this common protocol, which is the internet protocol. And probably the best way, and I actually did a whole series of videos on this that maybe I'll, uh, that we use internally at Akamai for training, and maybe at some point I'll make available externally. But the, the easiest way to think about it is by analogy to actually the postal service, because whenever you want to send information from one place to another, you basically have to take that information and put it into packets. And packets are just like envelopes. And when you put your information into a packet or into an envelope, you then have to address the envelope. And the protocol, much like with the postal service, specifies how you address the envelope. So for example, if I wanted to send a letter to my sister, I can't just write a piece of paper down and say to sis and hand it to the to the mailman, it's not going to get anywhere. What I've got to do is I've got to put it in an envelope and it has to, and it can't just be some piece of garbage. It's got to be reasonable envelope. And then I've got to address it in a certain way, right? It's, it's got her name. It's got her street address. It's got the zip code. And if I do that and hand it to the postal service through some magic, they will get it from here to, to my sister's house with pretty high probability, by the way, it might get lost. It might get destroyed. Well, the internet protocol is exactly the same thing. You that take is a great data, analogy. You take data and you put it into a packet and you hand it to your internet service, pro, you hand it to the, basically the network interface on your computer. And the, the internet protocol is basically what everything in between, the, if you will, the post offices, or in, in our case now the routers, they look at that address on your packet and they forward, 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 and eventually get it to the destination. Then at the destination, you open the packet and you can look inside. And 
The layering works as follows. On the upper layers, it's what goes inside the packet. And you can put lots of different things in there. I, I could write in Chinese, I could write in English, I could write in Pig Latin, um, I could write in a special language that only my sister and I understand. Doesn't matter as long as I put it in that envelope and I address it in a way that the post office can understand. So I can invent new languages, I can invent new ways of communicating with my sister, and, as, and, and only me and my sister need to understand that, that language. That's, that's the layering that goes on on top. And that's exactly what the World Wide Web was. The World Wide Web was basically a new specification of things that you would write and put inside those packets and inside those envelopes and, and basically give us our modern, our modern web. But when Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web, nothing on the internet had to change. All he had to do was basically write the code that takes his, his protocol, which is called HTTP, the Hypertext Transfer Protocol, all he has to do is basically take that, put those inside of packets, and as long as he does it in the standard way, everything just works. So and the two things on the other side know how to interpret it. And the two th- exactly the two things on the on each end, the server yeah. and the and the client or the browser, yeah. say they need to understand it. But nothing in the middle had to change. Nothing on the internet had to change because it's only the stuff that's inside the envelope. Now the other layering that goes on is is underneath which is basically how you get the envelopes from one place to another. So you can invent new postal services, but as long as that postal service... Rocket service, pneumatic tubes. (laughs) Anything you want to, as long as it knows how to read an address on on an envelope and get it to the other place, it works fine. And and apropos to this, relative to making this point on on the internet, somebody actually wrote uh, an RFP, request for proposal for what they called internet protocol over avian carrier. And the idea was basically carrying packets with pigeons. Because indeed, if you could train pigeons to carry internet packets from one place to another by simply reading the addresses and sending and going from one place to another, you could literally run the World Wide Web. That'd be a very, very slow internet. It would be a very <laughs> slow internet, but it would basically work. You know, your video would obviously rebuffer all the time, but it would yeah. work um, yeah. just very, very, very slowly. You could actually run the internet on pigeons if you could train it's your- the one bit Turing machine equivalent for networking. Yeah, and, and so this is an extraordinary thing that internet protocol has that power of yeah. just it really does nothing but solve the problem of how do you get a packet from one place to another. It doesn't try and solve reliability. It doesn't try and solve security. It doesn't try and solve anything. So underneath, we've seen Wi-Fi. We've seen 3G, 4G, 5G. We've seen Ethernet go from, from 1 meg to 10 meg to 100 meg. We've seen all kinds of improvements in the layers underneath. They just keep supporting IP. And above, we've seen innovation after innovation from from email, and we talked about Usenet, to then the World Wide Web and all kinds of video conferencing like what we're doing right now. We've seen just countless things on the layers above, which also, by the way, of course, include reliability and security and things like that. So those things, security and reliability, get built by layering on top of the internet protocol, not by modifying internet protocol itself. You, You layer on top. And... The power of layering couldn't be overstated. Yeah, that's really a fascinating exercise. And so Akamai has created a layer, yes. or many, maybe many, many layers, but certainly it works at a layer above that. So it's completely compatible with the existing internet, but it adds this new functionality. Exactly. Um, and it's comprised of 350 yeah. or so servers around the world, 1,000 plus cities. Now, what connects those servers to each other and back to the content? Is that a private network that Akamai owns and is built, or is it 
what we think of as the traditional transit networks in the internet? Or what does that backbone look like? They all can communicate with each other and with our customers' applications and with our customers' customers, the end users. They can all do that communication just over the standard internet using, again, we use the standard protocols. We layer just like, just as we discussed, and it can all just run over, over internet with no dedicated pipes. Increasingly lately, however, we have been building out our own sort of, if you will, private interconnect as an optimization. So a lot of our service, you might look at a particular cluster of servers in some location and you'll find that they're just directly connected to the local network provider, Reliance or AT&T or, or Korea Telecom or, or Telstra, whatever, just connected directly to the local, local provider with nothing else. That's, that's very common. But increasingly, you'll, you'll find that we also will connect to our own private interconnect, our own private fabric. And that's really done as an optimization for cost and for scale and things like that. Functionally, everything just works fine over, over the Internet. And, and much of our deployment still just, just uses raw connectivity. But yeah, as an optimization, we have been building out our own what we, what our, our fabric, our, our own interconnection fabric. Yeah, and as as we talked about earlier, that's not uncommon in many ways. I mean, the the large hyperscalers, the Microsofts and Amazons and Googles and Facebooks have all built out their own global private WAN, essentially, that is it runs in parallel to Akamai, it runs in parallel to what we think of as the traditional public internet. Although, as you point out to me, that since the mid-90s, it's been private. So it's all sort of private networks. It's just yeah. how, how big are they? And right. I, I heard a statistic. I don't know if Akamai has studied this, but I heard a statistic from a Nanog friend of mine who shall remain nameless, but someone who would who'd probably know. And he says that his estimate is that 70 to 80% of the traffic, quote, on the internet is actually traversing on private backbones. Do you have a sense? Is that a reasonable statistic? Or how does Akamai think about that? Well, I don't know exactly how he, what he's calling a private backbone. So, for example... He meant like on Google. Yeah, go ahead. Finish you know, so, thought. for example, if a packet goes from, say, Comcast to, say, Reliance, and, 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 and part of the way through, it uses, say, a CenturyLink backbone. Well, CenturyLink's a private company. So did that, does that, is that part of the 70% that he's counting? Or is he only counting sort of things like other companies that are layered above, if you will? I'm not sure how he's counting. It, it doesn't seem unreasonable depending on, on how that person's counting. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I think he, he was just drawing the, the loose contrast between the, the, the historical model of the internet that you sort of taught. And again, it's not, it's not actually how it works anymore with the sort of three tier where you've got a, a, a local access ISP and that ISP has a transit relation with a tier one network, which is you know, MCI WorldCom hasn't been around for a long time. And I think the contrast, the private network is like Amazon Direct Connect, like right, get on the Amazon's backbone. And by, by controlling those network pieces, you actually get to deliver, and I think this was one of, one, one of your points, higher quality of service, potentially control more of the route since we have resilience, perhaps add some security capabilities. And so it, 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 that, that seems like an, it seems natural that a company like Akamai would actually go into new lines of business that utilize that same network. Can you tell me more about beyond just content caching, what Akamai does today and what services it offers? Yeah, so going beyond, yeah, we, we talked about CDN and basically caching content and delivering. Indeed, from there, we've, we've gone far because that was all the way back in 98, 99 when the company was first started. Probably the, the, the first big change was moving from an environment where we're delivering just cacheable content to actually delivering the entire application, meaning not just the embedded images and say videos, but also being able to deliver the whole thing, the HTML. And once you do that, actually, 
there's an interesting thing that happened from a technology point of view, which was that to deliver the entire website with the HTML and everything, it re- you require a lot of programmability and a lot of customization. And, and, and I know you want to get to edge computing and computing at some point, but this is in some ways the seeds of edge computing, because in order to deliver a website, we needed a lot of programmability because it, it's not just cache and deliver. Different websites work in different ways. And in order to deliver the HTML, there's a lot of customization that has to happen customer by customer, website by website, and therefore a lot of programmability. So even to solve the problem of delivering a website and accelerating the delivery of a website, we, we had to develop some basic programmability. And we did. And it included things like being able to modify headers and modify the body of a request or a reply. It included a thing called edge side includes. And edge side includes was basically the idea of assembling the HTML from multiple pieces on the edge on the fly, depending on who you're delivering it to, what geography they're in, and all kinds of things that you might use to customize. You customize the HTML by assembling it from pieces through a mechanism that we call the edge side includes. And, and those are in many ways sort of the, the first steps toward what people now call edge computing. The next step for us, by the way, was um, being able to be fully programmable using Java. At that time, pretty much everything was Java and the way people were delivering HTML was through things like Tomcat and IBM WebSphere. And so we actually built our first iteration of edge computing, which is now easily 20 years old, what we really call edge computing was was edge java and it was it was actually running java on our servers through tomcat or through websphere ibm websphere or tomcat. i mean in many ways the first serverless and i put that in air quotes that's serverless that, workloads that's it, it's serverless it, today it's what we would yeah. call serverless it's what we might call function as a service because basically the customer just gives us the java code and we orchestrate where the Java code runs. We fire up Tomcat when it's needed and run the code. When it's no longer needed, we bring it back down. So it, it, it gets fired up in whatever locations are needed, as many copies as are needed. So all that orchestration happens automatically. And it really is exactly what today would be called serverless or function or function as a service. And this was easily 20 years ago, that sort of first manifestation of what today would be called edge computing. What we called it, we actually, we called it edge computing. But yeah, the, the actual product was with, with edge Java, because that was the way people wanted to do the programming. Today, there there's more mechanisms available. And really, JavaScript is kind of the the predominant programming model. And so if you look at what we offer today with Edge Computing, a product that we call Edge Workers, instead of being Java running in, say, Tomcat, it's now JavaScript running on on an interpreter, on the Node.js interpreter. In 2018, when I put together the first day of the Edge Report, I did a bunch of historical research trying to figure out what are the origins of the term edge computing and how has it been defined over time and can we get a universal definition of it? And one of the very first, in fact, the very first definition I found was from Akamai. So I I don't know if the credit is fully due to Akamai, but that is the first reference that I was able to find back in the late 90s. And and I, I think that to a very real extent, Akamai has been and continues to be a pioneer in, in edge computing. So yeah, actually, we'll, we'll come back to some of this other things. So I do want to talk about, so, so edge computing, right? <clears throat> I mean, in general, the, 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 there's lots of disagreement on what the term is. But in general, it means moving the compute closer to the 
device or the data or the user. Yeah. And the main reason for that is for performance, although there are potentially some other reasons. And obviously, taking a piece of code that would have to run on a centralized server and moving it to an Akamai's 350,000 servers around the globe <laughs> is edge computing by definition. Exactly. So one of the things that Akamai recently did was acquire Linode, which is yeah. a, a, a infrastructure as a service company. You can lease servers, essentially. How does that connect to the core business of, of Akamai? What, what is Akamai seeing that's happening in the world that's moving you in that direction, which is sort of like doubling down on this idea? Well, it's not just going to be JavaScript. It's going to be lots of things. How, how does Akamai think about that? It, it is, in many ways, an evolution and, and a, a really wonderfully synergistic add-on to where we were with edge computing. So... You know, another important point about edge computing, we talked about it being serverless, we talked about it being function as a service. The other really important point about it is that it's not bound to a particular location. Your application, the function that you give us, the JavaScript that you give us, runs everywhere as needed. It's not bound to any, any one location. As such, it's by and large, it's a function as a service, operates on the traffic flow. It's not heavily stateful. And I guess where I'm going with this is, is to say that well, edge computing is a really powerful model for doing some things, especially when you're computing on traffic flows, whether that traffic flow is to from a device or a user or whatever. When you're operating on traffic flows, very powerful model. But it's not the right answer for absolutely everything. And when you look at a modern web application and you look at the different pieces, right? Today, modern web applications that you think microservices, different microservices are doing certain things. Some of the services are very closely connected to operating on that traffic flow. You're looking at a request come in and you're looking at query strings and you're looking at headers and you're looking at bodies and you're constructing responses and things like that. You're operating on traffic flows. Perfect, edge computing. Then there's other microservices that are probably more about operating on stored data. Maybe you've got a, a data lake, a data warehouse, a, a database that is the data that you want to be computing on. Mm -hmm. And in that case, the edge is probably not your answer and because you want to do your compute on that data. And by the way, just as a simple rule of thumb, I oftentimes tell people that when you're thinking about which should I use, should I use edge, should I use core, if you will, edge versus core, which one should I use? The answer is pretty simple. The answer is follow the data. What data or what predominantly, what is the data that you're computing on? And you're better off moving the compute to the data than moving the data to the compute, almost always. So compute is much lighter weight generally. You don't want to be backhauling large amounts of, yeah, of data. A gigabyte application versus a, <laughs> a terabyte of data. Yeah. C compute is oftentimes is very lightweight. You can move compute specifications very easily, um, whether it's a function as in like a JavaScript function or a container. They're pretty lightweight these days. So easy to move the compute, better off moving the compute to the data than the other way around. So again, if you're computing on, on data that is in a traffic flow, edge is great. But if you're computing on, on stored data, stored data, data that's not in motion, data at rest, well, do your compute where that data at rest is, and that's not going to be the edge. Generally, your database is probably just in one or two locations. Maybe you've got it replicated across a couple, couple locations, maybe three at most. But generally, data at rest is pretty location-bound. And in that model, you probably want your compute to also be location-bound. And that's where core computing really is strong. And that's why, in many ways, cloud computing or computing in the core is so natural and so easy because you just fire up, you know, some virtual machines in the same place that you've got your storage, right? All of them, whether it's Amazon or Linode, 
they all offer storage connected directly to the compute. You can mount volumes or you can use other mechanisms, but your compute is tied to the data. Anyway, so my, my point is simply that while edge computing is great, when you look at all of the microservices that make up an application, I don't think there's many cases where you could say that they all belong at the edge or that they all belong at the core. Well, even when you say that, I mean, there is no single core and there is no single edge. In fact, it's actually a gradient. And where you place your compute and your data can be a function of whatever the business rules are, right? Yeah. It could be a function of carbon footprint, it could be a function of cost, it could be a function of latency and speed, it could be a function of reliability. And optimizing what, where, what that means for any particular application can be very different depending on what the application is. Yeah, I think that's a great point. There is a whole spectrum. There's a whole gradient, you know, from edge to core. And as you're constructing an application, you're thinking about all the different microservices that make up your application. There's a, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of factors that go into the placement. I gave a really oversimplified answer of just follow the data. And that's a good starting point. But there's a whole bunch of other considerations, you know, local regulations and things like that that have to also be incorporated into the thinking. So again, for a modern application, multiple microservices, you really want to be thinking about for each microservice, where does it belong? Does it belong at the edge? Does it belong at the core? Does it belong somewhere in between? And as you point out, there's not one core, not one edge. In the case of the core, for example, with Linode, today we have 11 Linode locations. Well, which of the 11 should you pick? I don't know. Or which two are you going to pick if you're going to replicate across a couple of them? Now, of course, we're going to expand Akamai being Akamai. And given our customer demands, we want to go well beyond those 11 locations. We're talking about having sort of a middle tier of distributed compute that will move into hundreds of locations where we can support virtual machines and containerized compute across hundreds of locations in a location unbound model, meaning you'd be running in all the locations as the demand arises. So, you know, we'll expand our Linode footprint by quite a bit in response to customer expectations, customer demand. That's really what the market needs, what it wants. But the net result is that you've got you got core in, say, tens of locations. You've got kind of the middle tier in hundreds of locations. You've got the edge in thousands of locations. They're each good for different things. And they're each needed for most applications. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not this application has 10 microservices, put them all at the core, or put them all in the middle, put them all at the edge. No, it's, it's sort of, you need to orchestrate them across the whole spectrum. And then ultimately, they have to be able to work together securely. They have to be able to message with each other. That's where our interconnection fabric comes in. That's where our mapping technology comes in. That's where our orchestration technology comes in. Because ultimately, again, multiple microservices running in multiple locations that all have to be securely interconnected and orchestrated. That's kind of the vision for what the future of the distributed cloud is. Now, when you say Akamai's interconnection fabric, can you help my audience understand how that relates to what we think of traditional interconnection, these major IXPs and the Equinixes and the digital realties and the top IXs? And the how, how does Akamai's interconnection fabric relate to what I think of as, as internet interconnection through an IXP? Yeah, it's a great question. There's multiple pieces to it, one of which we've already talked a bit about, sort of these private overlay networks that in some sense optimize so that rather than using, say, a carrier we actually have have our own private interconnectivity between locations. So, so part of it is that sort of physical layer where you have this overlay physical interconnected network. And again, that's really largely an optimization. 
But the other big part of it, and probably most crucially, is the software layer, which is messaging, orchestration. How do you make sure that you can communicate across all these different components? Because your, your microservices all have to talk to each other through various and, and find each other. So we, we often refer to this as, as an, an intelligent mesh. And this intelligent mesh is mainly software services that allow the microservices, our customers' microservices, to find each other, to communicate with each other, and to do so in a secure fashion. It's interesting, and I think this for explanatory power, most of the examples we've used have been of, of the type of, of a human consuming content. And I think most of the internet has been that way, right? I mean, in fact, one of the things that obviously drove the need for the original CDN was humans desiring richer content, video, large images, those sorts of things that were easily cached because they're static. The video does, you know, the, the Game of Thrones doesn't change when you're watching it. But, but, and I'm fond of saying this, and, and you may actually have a, a, a more scientific perspective on this, given how much of a perspective on the entire internet Akamai must have. But I see a trend where we're moving from an internet that's primarily humans talking to machines, or maybe humans talking to humans like we are now, which is measured in ones of seconds, hundreds of milliseconds. There's a, there's a lot of tolerance for packets being dropped and that sort of thing into a world where it's primarily machines talking to machines. And the machines may have may produce data at a, at a much higher rate. They may need a, a much higher degree of reliability. There may be some, some some physical consequences if you don't have a reliable network, like the laser lathe may, may miss its cutting right. angle. Can you characterize the changes in internet traffic that you're seeing and that you're predicting, and then how Akamai sees itself potentially adapting to that new world? Yeah, I mean, so you're absolutely right that more and more, not surprising probably to any of your listeners, is um, yeah, more and more you see the traffic to and from uh, devices that are not necessarily with a human sitting next to them. And I think that's going to continue. There's At this point, the cost of connectivity is so low that anything that gets any benefit from being connected, well, you might as well connect it, whether it's a piece of apparel or or, or a refrigerator or an appliance or, or a thermostat or an actuator or whatever it is. The cost of connectivity is so low, the the barrier is low, meaning if there's any reasonable benefit that you get from the connectivity, well, connect. So indeed, more and more traffic to and from devices, that does create some interesting problems. One is just the basic problem of scale. You now have more and more traffic from more and more locations. And so we continue to see a world in which the internet, the volume of traffic continues to grow leaps and bounds, and the importance of the edge continues to grow. Again, which is not to say that the core isn't also important. I think our acquisition of Linode is a recognition that it's a whole spectrum. It's not a one-size-fits-all. But I think increasingly, applications need to have at least some component running at or very near the edge. The core alone really just doesn't solve it. And that's becoming more and more the case, especially with devices and especially as things scale. But I think the other big factor that you have to consider with this is, and you touched on this, is the security aspect of it. Many of these devices are consumer grade. They're very inexpensive. You don't have an IT administrator maintaining them. So they have to sort of auto upgrade. Oftentimes it's maybe not available even to do the auto upgrade because the connectivity isn't always there or even just just its cost. So a lot of these devices run old software. They don't get upgrades very often. And so you now live in, in a world where potentially as a corporation, for example, you could see data being exfiltrated by a thermostat. You might have a thermostat in one of your buildings and that's exfiltrating data. We've seen stuff like that. So 
It does change. I think in many ways, I would say that the 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 dramatic change from from IoT really is is much on the security side as it is from the scale and the importance of the edge. And it, and, it, and it does mean that, for example, just because something is in your building connected to your local network, you can't necessarily just let it talk. Everything has to be controlled. And, you know, people now use the term zero trust, meaning just because it's on the network doesn't mean you trust it. You still have to inspect and control all of your traffic flows, whether they're in the building, on the network or over the Internet, wherever they are. And I think IoT really underscores the need for a model like that, where every single traffic flow is controlled, is inspected, is monitored and things like that. Is there an emerging concept of an, I don't know what to call it, but I, I think of it as like almost like a reverse CDN, right? Because the original problem was I have all this great content at the core that I need to get out to the edge. And now I've got potentially more over time content data. You know, you got a 30 cent sensor that just is on all day, just generating data potentially that maybe somebody could find useful. And so there's a plethora of data that's being generated at the edge and increasingly be generated at the edge as we connect more thermostats and sensors and cars and all these things to the internet. Is there a conception of the Akamai network that that goes the other direction now? Have, have you thought about that? Yeah. Yeah, it is actually. And, and this was definitely a uh, sort of a bit of a mindset adjust and, and a bit of a shift, which is to think of the CDN as bi-directional. Because I think in the early days when you started off and really thought of our network as just purely a CDN. And by the way, the way we sort of think about ourselves is we think of we have this platform and a port and, and we have a CDN business, but it's one of three big businesses. We've got delivery with CDN, there's security and there's compute. And we think of them as distinct things, CDN, security and compute. So CDN is just a piece of what we do on our platform. So we no longer really think of our platform just as a CDN because it supports all those capabilities. But anyway, the platform is definitely bi-directional. In the early days of pure CDN, it was by and large unidirectional. It was really from the origin, if you will, or our customer's web server out to the end users. Now the traffic goes bi-directionally because, you know, even as we started taking on social media customers in the early days, it was bi-directional because there's uploading. End users are uploading traffic as much as they're downloading. Um, So the traffic going through our network was no longer unidirectional. It was bi-directional. And that was 20 years ago um, as things were getting started with early social media. Nowadays, when you start adding on compute and start adding on security, it's very, for the reasons you just described, it's very much bi-directional. I haven't done a measure to say how much of our traffic is outbound versus inbound. I don't know what those exact fractions are, but let's just say there's a lot of inbound now. And, and every inbound request has to be inspected from a security point of view because that's where the attacks come from. When, when attackers go after our customers or go after us, that's inbound traffic looking to exploit vulnerabilities. So all that inbound traffic, now you got to compute on it because you got to inspect it and say, is there, is there a SQL injection attack here? Is there a local file inclusion attack here? Is it a DDoS attack? And so you got to care. Is it a bot? So some of the largest edge workloads today are your own internal workloads that are processing data on behalf of your customers? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, and I think of that as a form of compute, by the way, it's, it's sort of yeah. an applica- it's sort of an edge computing application. In many ways, security is kind of the poster child edge computing application, because just as I said, you don't want to backhaul the data to your compute. You want to move the compute to the data. I use the same rule of thumb for security rather than backhauling your traffic to your security stack. You're better off moving your security stack to the traffic, which means it has yeah. to be ubiquitous. You have to run your security stack at the edge where the devices are, where the users are, and also these days where the applications are. 
20 years ago, you might have had all your applications in one data center. Nowadays, you're probably in multiple clouds, or even if you're in one cloud, you're in multiple locations. I, it's, it's rare to find a decent-sized enterprise that doesn't have loc- applications now located in many, many locations. And probably most enterprises don't even know where all their applications are. Now, in a, in a distributed network like Akamai, 350,000 nodes and all this, is there a security advantage? You know, intuitively to me, it seems like, like if you've got your security detection and mitigation software all the way out on the edge, like let's say running on all or most of these nodes, if you detect a threat, does, does, because you're so far down in the network, does that give you more control over isolating and, sec- and firewalling that, that bad actor away from the rest of the network? Yeah, is, is there, we, is distribu- distribution about giving advantage from a security perspective. Right. There's a couple of things that uh, the, uh, sort of advantage there. One is exactly as you said, is that we can block the attack at its source. So wherever the attack is coming from, probably coming from multiple botnets distributed around the world, we can block right at its source before it gets anywhere near its intended target. And you really want to do you, you don't want to let the attack get anywhere near its intended target because the, the the farther you sort of, if you will, backhaul that attack traffic and let, let it get near its intended target, the more harm it can do. It can clog up pipes. It can bring down routers. It can find other sources or other vulnerable things that it can compromise and things like that. So blocking at the source is clearly better than waiting till it gets to its destination. You know, the other is also by, by being at the edge and by having this one platform that does all of these things, we have great visibility. So we see so much traffic that our ability to classify traffic and identify what is harmful, what is not harmful, what is a bot, what is a good bot, bad bot. So classifying traffic is another thing that we get by being at the edge and being at scale. I mean, I also point out that it's, it's, all, it's all one platform. So the same platform that's securing your application is, is also accelerating your application. You don't have to go to two different places. One platform to both deliver your application, accelerate your application, and secure your application. And nowadays, also develop your application now that we've got Linode. So you talk about all the traffic that you have access to. Can you size that for us and give me a sense of of how much traffic the Akamai network handles uh, on some time period? So if you think of it in terms of bandwidth, say say it's per second, we routinely run over a couple hundred terabits per second. I think we've peaked over 250 terabits per second. And it's hard to put those kinds of numbers in perspective. I know people like to say, you know, with that, you could download this many things. I don't know know that I find those kinds of comparisons useful. It's a lot. I mean, I remember in the early days when we were looking at, you know, we were running the network at megabits per second. And we were so excited when we hit a gigabit per second, a gigabit per second. And, and then, you know, now here we are at hundreds of terabits per second. It's rather astounding. Now, of course, a fair amount of that, if you measure in traffic, a fair amount of that is coming from the delivery part of our business media. Because when it comes to, to bits, the way you consume bits quickly is with movies. And increasingly, you know, multi, you know, augmented reality, virtual reality, things that might over time become metaverse, things like that. All these things are very data hungry and, and, and work at very high bit rates. You know, modern movies work at very high bit rates, but it's going to just become more so when, it, when, you know, when you're thinking augmented reality, virtual reality and things like that. When you look at technology today and, you know, you've been, this has been something that's captured your imagination for your entire life, pretty much. What, yeah. What's most exciting to you today? What, what are the innovations that most excite you? You know, it's interesting when, when you think these days about, you know, say maybe the things that are on people, the tips of people's tongues, right? Everybody nowadays is talking about AI and they're talking about the metaverse and, and Web3 and, and AR, VR and things like that. For me, you know, when I think about those things, 
I try and put them in sort of a big perspective and I can't help myself but to think about sort of the, the, the big arcs that I've seen in my life and I'm, I'm aware of in terms of technology evolution. And, and, and I always go back to the, my first love, which was aviation. And I try and think about how would people view the arc of technology when it comes to information technology versus say something else that I'm familiar with like aviation. So let me you know, run this little sort of thought experiment, which is, you know, if you think about somebody who died around the turn of the century and you could bring them back 60 years later, 1960, imagine how astonished they would be by aviation, right? People crossing the country in jet airplanes just a few hours across the country, just a few hours, you know, and then in the 60s, the 747 comes along. And I mean, it's just staggering. And just a few years later, you're putting a human being on the moon and things like that. It would be staggering to them what happened from, you know, 1900 to say 1960s. Well, let's do the experiment again and consider somebody who passed away in the 1960s and bring them back today. Let's say, and they'll look at aviation. Well, they would recognize aviation. They wouldn't be staggered by anything. It's like, well, it looks roughly the same. The airplanes look roughly the same. They fly at roughly the same speed. Although, although Elon did land a rocket on a moving platform in the water. That, that would have impressed me. Yeah, I mean, but, but again, how many of us, none of us are riding. That's right. It rockets. seems like, yeah, somebody could figure out how to do that. It's not. Yeah, but but yeah. by and large, if you look at aviation today, it's to an, out, to an insider, I'm sure an engineer at, at Boeing would tell you about all the amazing things that have changed and a lot of amazing things have changed. But from an outsider's point of view, it's kind of the same thing. The planes look roughly the same. Not a lot ha- has changed from, from that point. Now, they might wonder where, where did Pan Am go and, and why aren't we flying on a, on, a, on a McDonnell Douglas 15 or a Lockheed whatever. So they might, some of the details there, but they recognize aviation. Well, let's do the same thought experiment for information technology. And I think you know, somebody who, say, passed away in the 60s, you bring them back today, they would be as, as unimpressed with aviation as they might be. They would be staggered by what's happened with telecommunications. And, yeah. <laughs> They'd well, see a smartphone and like somebody somebody invented the tricorder. Right. Yeah. I mean, can think about that, you know, walking down the street and doing video with somebody on the other side of the world in real time. And yeah, that just not to mention the although, although AT&T introduced the video phone at the 1964 World's Fair. And it's, yeah, it's, 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 but I'm talking about to the person on the street and their experience and what they see and, you know, completely what, different. And it's the completely outside. Different. It's, it would be staggering. So, well, let's think do we think what's going to be so let's do let's do that experiment again now somebody passes away around now and you bring them back in 60 years are they going to be staggered by the changes in telecommunications and information technology or will it look roughly familiar so just like aviation over the last 60 years to an outsider looks roughly the same the familiar is the next 60 years in telecommunication going to look roughly familiar or is it going to be staggeringly different and I'm not sure of the answer, but it wouldn't surprise me if it looks roughly familiar, if it's roughly the same thing. Mm. Now, again, maybe some things have changed and maybe it's more ubiquitous, more available. I'm wearing a holograph glasses instead of looking at a flat screen, but. Yeah, so some dressing around the edges sure. have changed and things like that, but it might be pretty familiar. That wouldn't okay. surprise me. You know, so for all the talk of AI and metaverses and things like that, and while I'm sure those things will advance and do some wonderful things for us, it's not clear to me that they are going to rock the world over the next 60 years the way aviation did from 1900 to 1960 or the way telecommunications did from 1960 to 2020. I don't know. But, but I'd like to think about what, what are maybe some of the possibilities. And maybe one possibility might be the, the modern city. 
Maybe AI and telecommunications can actually completely remake the modern city. I don't know. I don't think, by the way, that it would be some huge leap in self-driving cars, just the AI side of it. I think it would be the way we think about cities, the way we construct cities and sort of the embedded technology in our roads and in our and the way we use them and things like that. But I think there's a lot of room to potentially remake the city. And, and I focus on this one because I live in a city. I love living in the city. I love the experience of living in the city, but I hate getting around in the city and the way it there's a lot of negatives. And I think a lot of those things are solvable with a lot of the technology that we have today. And that would completely remake what a city looks like. I mean, it would be self-driving cars or self-driving transportation. Again, probably not because of some huge innovation in AI by itself, but because of the way we deploy AI and embed it into the cities and, and, and things like that. Well, j- just imagine what, what single family neighborhoods would look like if we no longer needed to own cars. Yeah, well, you might I still mean, ha- have cars, but they would be orchestrated across much better roads in a way that is efficient. And, and again, they fold up into a little suitcase that you can like put in your front closet next to your coat. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I guess maybe that's sort of wishful thinking because I love the experience of living in the city, but I hate these some of these other aspects of it. And I do believe that the technology, even AI as it currently exists nearly, is is roughly able to solve that problem if you if you approach it holistically. Again, it's not because you're going to have a better AI in a car as it's currently as it currently works in the way the city currently works with detours and roadblocks and the and fog and, and the guy in the street, you know, with a sign says, hey, you better turn over here. And it's not, it, not in that mixed environment. But if you remade the, the city with embedded technology and everything was was automatic and, and self-driving, then maybe it would all, it would all work. Anyway, so uh, maybe that's the, the optimist in me is maybe when I think about what could change so that in 60 years when somebody comes back, they're staggered by this incredible improvement, just like the other examples that we've talked about. Maybe that's, a, maybe that's a case. But if I'm guessing, I don't think it's the metaverse and AI by themselves transforming telecommunications as we know it. I think I think a lot of that might be pretty familiar over the next 60 years. I, I don't know. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Like, what is that thing that, you know, like, like, say, aviation, where it's just so completely transformative and new? And it's, real, it's a really interesting thought exercise to yeah. go through. Yeah. Bobby, this has been a fabulous conversation. I wish we had another hour. Maybe I'll bring you back on the show in season three. But if people want to find out more about you or get a, in touch with you online or find out more about Akamai, where should they go? Well, you know, obviously we have the, the Akamai, you know, website, which is easy to find. And I'm on, I, I generally, um, I like to use LinkedIn and, and Twitter and I'm just Robert Blumoff on both LinkedIn and Twitter, you know, and especially if you're a, if you happen to be a Jack Benny fan and like, like comedy, I like to, I like to talk about my granddad and things that I've learned from him and some of the interesting stories from, from back. That's neat. There's a great uh, Fast Company article. I think we'll put a link to the show notes. It's, uh, it's a I, fun That'd be read. great. Yeah, I did. Uh, yeah. I had fun writing about, about granddad for, for Fast Company and I uh, wrote a little thing on LinkedIn. LinkedIn about a wonderful uh, letter that I have from John F. Kennedy to my grandfather, which has an amazing story behind it and is su- super fun. But anyway, yeah, so I'm on, on some of those social media things and um, yeah, love, love to hear. Bobby, th- thank you for taking the time. This has been great. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and a review and tell a friend. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of our partners at Dell Technologies. Simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting Dell.com.